listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today on the show, we have Tom Atterbury. Tom joined First Pacific Advisors in 1997. He serves as Portfolio Manager for the FPA New Income, Flexible Fixed Income, and Source Capital Funds. Prior to joining FPA, Tom served as Chief Fixed Income Strategist of Fifth Third Bank and was Chief Investment Officer of Mercantile Bank. He earned a bachelor's degree in business administration from Texas Christian University and is a CFA charter holder. Enjoy my conversation with Tom Atterbury. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Ryan, for having me this afternoon. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first thing I like to start out with is talking about the global financial crisis. Up until that point, we had SNL crisis, dot-com bubble, bailout of long-term capital management, a lot of things throughout the years, but nothing was really quite like 2008. So take us back to what you were doing during that time, what was going through your mind, and if it changed the way you view the financial system. So as far as as what I was doing at the time, I was an analyst and co-manager of the FPA New Income Fund at the time. So so I'm with the current firm that I'm in. And as far as what we were doing, one of the interesting things is we had, for quite a while, sort of ascertained that there was going to be a financial dislocation associated with really poor mortgage underwriting. And it was probably more pervasive than people thought as to where it was. So we weren't shocked by the event. It's sort of confirmation of what we thought would eventually happen. We had no, obviously, idea of the timing. Um, but, okay, that's occurred. And, oh, all right, we were, we were okay with that. Because, well, now what do you do? And in, in the case of the fund itself and the ma- money we were managing, we were seeing a tremendous flow of money in during a period of time of, you know, financial dislocation and stress. We run a conservative mutual fund. So it's okay. Where can we find assets to invest in where we feel comfortable about sort of the safety of them? And that, you know, if, if someone was to call on us for, you know, as a mutual fund, you know, to withdraw, would we be okay? And will the liquidity be fine? So the biggest challenge we had was not so much finding things, was getting some sort of comfort level. What can we own where there is liquidity if we needed to sell? Because as as we found out from that particular you know financial event, liquidity completely dried up for for an extended period of time, and that really was the to us the biggest risk was to be able to be in a position to provide needed liquidity to clients if they if they so desired. Right. And let's talk a little bit about that transitions us into the current time frame where we are right now with the repo market and the Fed's balance sheet ticking up again, even though it's on the shorter end of 30 day bills, et cetera. Why don't you talk a little bit about where we are right now and draw some parallels or differences to back then? So you, when you start thinking about today and where you find yourself, and I'll spend just a minute on, on the, on the problems of liquidity and the, and sort of the, the day-to-day financial plumbing of the market that, that occurred in the second half of September is it's somewhat surprising that the Fed didn't realize, okay, there is a need for liquidity. Liquidity being someone needs to finance something they've purchased in the capital markets or someone needs to pay for something or in the case of what actually happened, tax payments that occurred in the middle of September, that they seem somewhat surprised by that. And I, and I thinking through it, go, well, what were some of the real causes? Well, you thought you had excess reserves that could be used 
by the banking system to pump liquidity in the system to, to handle these settlements that were going to happen on September 15th. But lo and behold, the reserves didn't show up. Well, why didn't they show up? Well, because the regulatory world has changed and said excess reserves held at the Fed classify as highly liquid assets that a bank can hold to reach the regulatory requirements it has for high-quality liquid assets. So in essence, while they were sitting there, the regulatory world changed post-2008, and they're not usable for what you thought they might get used for. So I sort of sort of phrase it as an illusion of liquidity. And so it's a combination of you've ballooned this balance sheet, you've got these excess reserves, but you turn around and implement then a set of regulations to protect the banks so that you don't have the banking crisis and problems you had in 2008, and lo and behold, another problem crops up. Right, and there's been some talk about how the Fed changed the way they actually target short-term rates as far as using interest on excess reserves compared to open market operations, and they may have miscalculated how that would actually work in practice. Is that something that you think they're going to be taking a look at, or is that something that they got wrong, or maybe that's not even an issue here? Well, when you, th- you think through, okay, they, they, they end up with this liquidity problem that occurred in, in September. So you think through, guys, you've got three options of, of what you can do. You can inject liquidity into the system. You could adjust your regulatory regime to where you could potentially free up those excess reserves to be used in the repo market in liquidity. You know, or you could institute QE and pump more money into the system. And after they, you know, their, their first reaction, which by the way didn't work out real well because they actually had to, to say, oh, wait a second, we, we're going to institute this, this repo facility, but we're having technical problems. Give us a while. Oh, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> but anyway, so their first reaction was to just, okay, I'm going to throw liquidity at the system through an overnight and term repo with the Fed. Okay gets you through the crisis. Well, I don't think they're going to change the regulatory regime to, to, to ease up the restrictions on the excess reserves. So now they're left with either permanently have a repo facility or do what they appear to be doing because it's, it's while, while Chairman Powell said this is what we think we're going to do, he's, he's not officially been able to do it yet, is we're going to buy something to the tune of $60 billion a month of three-month treasury bills in order to try to lower short-term interest rates, pump some liquidity in the system so that it can settle on all those things that it needs to settle on. Right. And so it's another program going after the same, okay, how do I control the short-term interest rate environment and liquidity needs of the system? So they layered layered on something new, not necessarily fixing something that was already there. Right, and that transitions us into the balance sheet. So there's some debate whether should this be called QE or should this be normal market operations. And some people say, well, that's not really why even debate the issue. The balance sheet is growing. So before the Financial crisis, the balance sheet grew to around 800 billion. After they took it all the way up to four and a half trillion, it was supposed to be like watching paint dry and shrinking back to some normalization. That didn't quite happen. We started to roll off and it seems like we're taking back up again to, to where the peak was. How do you view the balance sheet as far as where it is now? Can it be normalized? Is it an issue that it's, that it's this high? How do you view it? So we wrote about as they went into QE2 and, and Operation Twist and, and those items and laid out what they thought they could do. They originally thought that, okay, we can buy these securities to help the situation out to get the economy to grow and all the issues that they did. And then at some future date, we could roll them off or sell them. That was part of it and, you know, part of their, their original plan. I think what they discovered is they couldn't sell them. You know, when you're the largest owner of something, or you're a very, very large owner, mm-hmm. we all know you're a very, very large owner. To whom are you going to sell to? We know when you show up. So they're kind of a prisoner in the fact we don't see where you could sell that. You could let it run off. Maybe that was the idea of paint drying. 
um, interesting paint they were thinking of. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, maybe you could think, and that didn't seem to work either. So it seems to us that that thing, okay, this looks like a permanent fixture for you. As the comments are made is, 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 um, buying $60 billion worth of treasury bills every month, QE or just a liquidity provider. Yeah, is it splitting hairs? Probably, but to a central banker, maybe it's not. Um, I kind of think of it and go, well, is this permanent increase in the size of that balance sheet or temporary? Well, if you're doing 60 billion a month and it's going to be for eight months, it may only be temporary, but you know, if it becomes something that looks permanent, then well, that's QE. You just bought a different asset. Well, then, you didn't buy the 10 you bought the three month bill, but, but you, you were doing the same thing. Exactly. And it looked like it was only be going to be for a short amount of time and then they kept extending it and, and extending it. So we'll have to see during the next meeting what, what will actually happen. So that kind of brings us into some of the knock-on effects of these policies, zero interest rate policies and all the stimulus around the world. We had at one point, I think it was over 17 trillion in negative yielding sovereign debt. We've had some of these issues as far as not inflation not showing up in CPI, but in asset prices, arguably. So as a money manager, especially on the fixed income side, how do you look at this market as, as far as being able to provide yield and deliver alpha in this type of environment? It becomes much more difficult because of the fact you've got what has now appeared to have turned out to be a much more permanent play, set of players being central banks. Remember, originally, QE was just some sort of temporary liquidity measure to get us out of the great financial crisis that we were in. And it was going to go away. Well, okay, 10 years later, it's still here. Um, seems permanent to me. Um, you, you, you think about the negative interest rates out of Europe in the ECB, and they say, well, this is just temporary. Well, five years later, you still have them. So they've become permanent. And, and the same in, in, in Japan. All of which are not getting you what you thought you were going to get, which is, oh, look, the economy is growing much faster than it was in the past. People are borrowing money and going out and doing various things when you're starting a business, buying an asset, whatever the case may be. You actually find that they're not borrowing as much. And so you end up with this, what we see is this sort of distortion that's going on because the Fed is the Fed, but central banks in general are sort of always in as a player. The negative interest rates are starting to have a pretty significant impact on, say, European banks and their profitability. And you're starting from that standpoint, and you think about Europe, Europe is much more bank lending centric to how credit is transferred into the economic system. Well, negative interest rates are hurting the profitability of banks, which means it's more difficult for them to lend out money, which means it's going to be more difficult to get economic activity to grow at a faster pace. Negative interest rates, you're now starting to see that the sort of, okay, here's the prescription medicine. Now we're on to page two and three of what the side effects are, and the side effects are showing up when they're not very positive. In general, what you see, and it's even true in the U.S., to it, but to a lesser degree, you were sitting here punishing savers. So as someone who provides a service or a product, if you will, to savers, it gets much more difficult for us. Now, in our particular case, we have two objectives we are trying to reach. We want to get a positive return in a 12-month period, and we're trying to get CPI plus 100 basis points over a five-year period. And this more activist central bank, quantitative easing and, and those sorts of things, where they're trying to drive high-quality asset prices up in the case of bonds, high-quality bond assets prices up, yields down. It's made it very difficult for us to get CPI plus 100 because they've made real rates either negative or only slightly positive. Right. And that's become a we can cure for the up a hundred and you know we can cure by using a, a, a stress test of if rates increase by a hundred basis points in twelve months, does my bond still produce a positive return, and minimizing control for that twelve month positive return. 
What's really hurting and making it difficult is that real return we're trying to get. Right. And you're managing for total return on the fixed income side? It is within those two guidelines I laid out, goals I laid out for you. We are, we are managing to for total return. Those are the two investment sort of objectives we have. There's some guideline constraints. We can only have 25% in, in triple B and below as an example is the maximum we can have. So there's a control to, to credit. Yeah. And, and going back to some of the distortions in the market, we've seen this huge amount of negative yielding sovereign, which can be somewhat explained by some of the pensions and certain government agencies being obligated to own it. But we saw, I think at one point, over a trillion dollars of negative yielding corporates, which came as a surprise. How do you actually view that piece of the market? Um, I think as you, you, you look at that, you're right, it was somewhere close to a trillion at the time of corporate debt. There were actually, by the way, a handful of European high yield bonds that had a negative yield. And you, wow. yeah, that's what we said. Wow. Um, you, you think through that and you go, that policy of negative rates combined with some regulatory rules about the need for a pension scheme or an annuity scheme or a retirement scheme in Europe to own a certain amount of high quality assets. So that's the regulatory part. And what you've done is you've extremely distorted that look at risk and reward, right? Am I getting paid for credit risk? And that, you know, and you see that distortion when you look at it and say, okay, this is a corporate bond with a negative yield. You know, it's, it's not like the, you know, now granted, many of those are pretty well known corporations. Some of them happen to be U.S. corporations who have issued, you know, debt in euros, but it just speaks to how negative rates distort that look at how do you value credit? How do you get compensated for default risk? or just the risk of, of cash flow changes that are acute with corporations. Yeah, and looking at yields around the world, I think a lot of investors are looking at the U.S. and they can see some relative value, or even in some other countries with the positive yields. So looking at it as kind of the best house on a bad block, or other examples that investors give. How do you actually look at the U.S. right now? Going back to 2012, the U.S. 10-year hit the low at the time. It was somewhere around 1.3. We retouched that. We actually dipped below that in 2016, summer of 2016. How do you view rates right now? There's some talk about maybe heading down below 50 bips, maybe even going into negative if things get really bad. It's brought up as a possible policy option by at least a couple people at the Fed. How are you looking at rates right now? So to, to the, the difficulty that we see is that rates domestically are getting influenced, you know, to some degree, I don't know if it's substantial or if it's small, but I know there's, there is a, an influence of it coming from I'm in Europe or I'm in Japan and I need to find a positive yield because I'm a retiree or I've got a retirement scheme that I'm providing for retirees and it's forcing them to come here to find a positive yield. That looks like it's going to, to some degree, continue because if you think demographically, both of those regions have a much older population than the U.S., much, you know, larger segments that's in retirement. So that's putting pressure on rates to decline on the long end, something the Federal Reserve has very limited control to begin with and now probably has even less control because, the you know, it's being influenced by European investors, Japanese investors. So their challenge is now coming, well, I need to get a positive sloped yield curve because I know in the past if I have a, a, a inverted yield curve for any extended period of time, the next result, uh, roughly a year later, looking historically, is the U.S. economy goes into recession. So you look at that and go, okay, then that really means that those outside forces may have some influence on short-term rates, Fed fund rates and such, that the Fed has more control over as it tries to get in the, tries to get the thing to, to look again 
to get back and to be more of a positive sloped curve. It's making their job more difficult. There doesn't appear to be anything in the near term that's going to change those dynamics. You know, the ECB has said that they're going to, you know, have these negative rates for a period of time, and Japan has has continued down as well. So I think it makes it much more difficult for them to have control over domestic rates in such a manner to have control of, okay, how do do I want this economy to grow or not grow um, going forward? The one good news of that, is it would appear because of this and because of the fact that you look around the world, there's just an oversupply of goods. Inflation does not appear to be a major problem, which is obviously, you know, they've got a 2% inflation target. We're running less than that. So they're not finding a pressure to, oh, I need to raise rates because inflation's a problem. They at least have some room to maneuver in that aspect. That's exactly where I was going to go next is the inflation question. And we haven't seen inflation show up really in CPI. It's been all over the world, especially U.S. in developed economies. But we've seen this elevation in risk assets. The long end of the curve, as you mentioned, the Fed has arguably little control over. Rates have come down. The curve was inverted for a point. As far as the looking at CPI and inflation expectations, there's the sense that maybe we'll never have inflation and maybe the Fed might just double down and come in for more QE, maybe double or even triple the balance sheet in a downturn. How are you looking at inflation right now as far as in the consumer sector? We've seen housing, student loans, pockets of the economy, but How are you looking at it on a CPI basis, and could it actually ever increase? I mean, you know, you never want to say the words never and always, uh, but thinking about what's going on for, say, the last, let's say, 20 to 30 years where there's been was this sort of push for, for a globalization of supply chain and globalization of trade in, in where you, you would goods and services, mostly goods, where you could acquire them from. And the end result of that is you've created more supply of goods than you have a demand for. And so the end result is that that's really putting a dampener on inflation. Um, as things have moved overseas from a manufacturing standpoint, or, or, or is, is a acute example in the U.S., corporations have done a very, very good job of trying to take technology and efficiency and driving down costs domestically. You know, the banking system, as an example, is doing more and more to figure out how do I reduce my costs? You know, is it more ATM machines? Is it banking by phone? Anything that doesn't involve an individual, right, um, as ways to become more efficient have all been things that have pushed inflation down and the expectations down some. So looking out, you go, okay, there's probably not in some visible time frame a real huge concern that inflation would get out of control. You know, does it go, does it make it to two? Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, it is pretty evident that making interest rates zero or negative doesn't necessarily mean people borrow more. Um, the thought process at some period of time that if you did all this QE and you put this money in the system, it would eventually get lent out and things would grow didn't work out because it just sat at the as excess reserves because you were paying a, a return on those excess reserves and the rec- regulatory environment said you should have them. So banks just hold on to them and don't lend them out. So the end result was that the inflation did end up showing up, but it only showed up in a couple of places. And that was basically assets. You name the asset, it's inflated over the last 10 years because it was just money chasing to, to, to go after it. So you have had that inflation. But you haven't really seen, and we don't expect to see any really dramatic change in CPI to where, oh, I'm going to go to, and then you pick some much, much higher number. There just doesn't seem to be anything out there that would drive that. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier on the fixed income side, I've heard investors going out there and saying, okay, we're buying fixed income as kind of a stock for appreciation, hoping yields uh, keep plummeting, and then we're buying bonds for the yield. So it's kind of just complete opposite turned on its head. 
Now, looking at the balance sheet and with inflation expectations, some people are arguing that this the Fed's balance sheet is really just an asset swap. So you mentioned, you know, swapping treasuries or in some cases MBS for reserves. And then the banks are credited with those reserves. As you mentioned, they're getting interest. So there's not a huge incentive to lend out. Corporations have also done buybacks instead of investing in property, plant and equipment. And you also mentioned the technology piece, demographics, these things really weighing down the inflation. But with the balance sheet, there's this question of, is this an asset swap or is this more like debt monetization if the balance sheet doesn't roll off? What would you say to someone that says, okay, this is just an asset swap and this is just something that should be seen as normal? It it seems to us it's more of a financing mechanism for increasing government debt. If you look at the various debt players at the table, the largest grower has been government. And who's become the new biggest, who had become the new biggest buyer? Oh, another department of the government, right? The, the, the Federal Reserve. So in some ways, you, we've looked at this and go, well, you've just facilitated borrowing by the Fed, you've, you've, you, uh, by the Treasury Department. You've not asked the, the government to go out and try to go in the private market and raise this money that that needs to raise. Because if you were to do that, the person you would be raising it from is more than happy to lend it to you, but they're expecting a return greater than inflation for doing that. But the current situation is the yields on treasuries aren't that much different than inflation. They're not that terribly interested in lending to you for that length of time. So you're sort of left with, Federal Reserve having been in the past, the person that was basically doing the, the lending of money to the borrower, which is the Treasury Department. So I don't know if it's necessarily a swap as much as it was a, a way for financing, you know, debt monetization to go on. Yeah, and the Fed is supposed to be the lender of last resort, and they did arguably a great thing in 2008, 2009, and injected a huge amount of stimulus into the system when it needed it. And then obviously TARP came, which had to get con- congressional approval. But when you look at the balance sheet now, like you mentioned, the Fed being in there and distorting rates probably look much lower compared to what another investor would be looking for. Where do you see the demand coming from as far as when you look at China, Japan, they each own about $2 trillion outstanding of the $23 trillion. So when you look at the demand, is the Fed really going to be the one in there picking up the slack or where will the the demand come from? So first off, yes, it's, you know, the the Federal Reserve and it's a central bank policy in in, in general has been one of, oh, in a time of duress, the central bank is the lender of last resort. And this goes back to to discussions that uh, central bankers and economists and, and strategists had in, in in the UK. But what that meant at the time was they would lend to the banks, who would then turn around and lend the money out to businesses and individuals. Mm-hmm. That was the way that was designed to be. Okay, I'm going to provide the liquidity of the bank to go do that. You know, lend to the bank. Uh, and oh, by the way, they always take good collateral in, in exchange. Not, I'm going to directly lend to government, individual, corporation. It was through the banking system. So that's sort of a change that we've we've, we've seen this time. Um, when, I, when I think through the difficulty you're having, you're trying to get people to borrow money, but the people don't want to borrow money. You have an aging population. They want to save. They have enough of what, you know, business has enough capacity, doesn't need to go borrow the money to increase its capacity to do whatever it needs to do. So you really are pushing on a string to get something done by running this policy because you're trying to make borrowing really inexpensive. But lenders, you know, you're you're trying to lend and make borrowing inexpensive. The borrower says, I don't want to borrow. I don't have a need to. I've got more cash than I need. I'm trying to save. I've got more capacity than I need. So you're not getting the benefit. Well, why is that occurring? And what is it causing? 
is, well, part of it is also one of, you've got too much debt in the system already. And the debt's starting to choke the system's ability to grow because debt gets paid first. You pay debt before you pay, you know, you pay debt, you pay salaries before you do dividends and, and other items. It's, it's the first thing paid. And so it's starting to choke the system some, yet, yet the central banks are trying to push for more, for people to borrow more when they're going, no, no, I don't want any. To your point about, well, if the Fed is not the borrower, who was going to, you know, lend them the money, right? It's not going to come from the Federal Reserve. It's going to come from somebody else. And it's going to come from the private sector, which is what I said before. Well, the private sector is more than happy to provide lending to the federal government. It just needs a couple of things. The biggest one of which is it needs a yield that is greater than inflation. It needs a real return. That's what it demands. That's what its objective is, right? It's trying to save for something usually retirement. Well, it needs to have that savings grow at a rate greater than inflation. So if they're going to go that route, then they probably should expect to see rates at least be greater than inflation when they're doing it, and which means the interest costs of government is going to go up. Right. So I think a lot of people have said, okay, the Fed has to keep coming in with stimulus and keep these policies going so the interest on the natural debt doesn't explode. On the other side of the coin, you have insurance companies distorting their business model. They're trying to match assets and liabilities. You have retirement sector being punished, retirees extending way out to where they could have retired much earlier, say if 10-year was at maybe 5%. So when you look at this path to normalization, it seems like we it would really help the economy in a lot of ways to normalize rates Say even if we got up to, you know, four, five, six percent, kind of in that range on the 10 year, what's the path to normalization? Should we actually maybe start notching up rates now or at least not cutting anymore? And then as you mentioned, maybe it comes from kind of the old bond vigilantes or the private sector on the long end just demanding a higher rate. So, you know, if the, if you can get to a, normally slope yield curve, short rates less than long rates, then you realize that that's more conducive for the banking system to want to lend. It's more profitable for them. And if you were to do that, and at the same time, I, this is just me and wishful thinking almost, and as a central bank, you started to be less, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You're going to play a lesser role. You're going to stand aside. You're going to become a little more laissez-faire and just let the marketplace work things out. Mm -hmm. We probably would tend to be better off because you'll start to see borrowers and lenders come together and, and find a rate that works for both. Now, going through that, the difficulties is, well, as a large borrower, which is the largest being the government entity, the federal government, that means your interest costs are going to probably rise, which means it's going to squeeze you on some other things that you may want to do. That also means that some, thing, some entities that are highly levered, private entities that are highly levered, are going to default. It's going to have to refinance what they're, you know, restructure what they're doing. Those are all, you know, the, the restructuring is a very painful experience. Someone doesn't get paid back. People get laid off. Plants get closed. All those sorts of things go on. So in the short term, it's sort of painful. But in the long term, the reconstituted businesses that have now reorganized themselves are stronger and better. So longer term, it's actually better for you. It's just you're going to take some pain in the short term. Now, yeah, it, I'm not saying that for the, for the, for the federal government. They don't, it, that's not a default issue for them. It's just, okay, you're paying for you, the federal government's going to be, all right, your interest costs are going to rise and you're going to have to look at things and go, okay, I'm probably not going to provide this and I'm going to provide that. You know, you're going to have to sort of go through and, and, and become more efficient and streamline some of what you're doing. But I think longer term, if we can go through that, which is less Fed intervention, less quantitative easing and all those sorts of issues the better off long-term. Now, long-term might be five, ten years, right? The, the, the better off we, we would we would be. Do I think they're going to do that? No. The next downturn, they're going to be just as intrusive as they were the last time. They're going to try to fix everything by some policy or procedure. Exactly. And it seems that the longer we kick the can down the road, this is going back to maybe two, 2012, it just seems like we're – growing a larger and larger bubble 
or larger and larger exuberance, let's say, if some people don't like the word bubble. But when you look at corporations being levered, some of the highest, when you look at, you know, any asset class, when you look at equities by almost any measure, a lot of it's obviously due to the buybacks. But when you look at the next market dislocation, let's call it, there's some real concern of how bad things could get. How do you look at managing for something like that? Do you see a scenario where money rushes in to treasuries for that safe haven trade? In 2008, we saw pretty much every asset correlate to one except long-term treasuries. How do you view that piece? So thinking back and going, okay, do, you know, without saying what's the percentage probability, just realize, okay, that sort of event probably will occur. I mean, I can, I can look, you know, we've, we've talked about, okay, there's a savings and loan crisis of the late eighties. There's long-term capital management. There's a dot-com bubble. There's a housing crisis. Gee, about every 10 or 12 years, there's been some sort of financial exuberance that went on that had to find itself being corrected. Mm-hmm. And go, okay, then, I, then I'm probably going to see that again and to some degree. I may not know the catalyst of what it is and what might be the asset, but I realize I'm going to see this, this occurring. And so running a fund that we do, which you know, new income fund, which is short in duration, conservative. You realize it's it's a it's a it's a, a place where you're trying to get this positive return in a 12 month period. There's two things that you, you know, we're trying to work through. One, we realize well, if it looks like things in the past, we tend to have money in because we look like a a calm port in a free or violent storm. Same token, I've got that going on. I realize. There are others who will be unable to sell other assets they have because there either isn't liquidity or the liquidity they have is at prices they don't want to participate in. But they come to us and look at us as, well, you own nice, safe, and secure things, so I'm going to sell you because your liquidity is actually there. So we've got this balancing act we're working through. Okay, we're going to have money in that, you know, opportunities to put to work, but we need to be very mindful that we could very easily have of individuals who may in entities who may want to exit because they need to, they need liquidity for something else. And we're the only port that can provide it for them. And it's, it's, you know, it's a delicate balance you have to try to work through, you know, as, as you realize you have opposing forces coming at you, people who want liquidity and people who want safety at the same time from you. Right. And I think the longer that we go down this road, I think there's an argument to be made that the longer the cycle lasts without taking our medicine and kind of taking our lumps, as you mentioned, that the bigger drawdown we're going to have. Now, it's arguable, obviously, but when you look at this next correction no one can say when it's going to be and obviously i won't ask you that (laughs) but we know that markets have cycles and there's a business cycle there's an economic cycle and these types of things and this is a fact of life so when you're looking towards the next market dislocation things were a lot different in 2008 we had this buildup of mortgage debt we had a lot of people taking out loans that probably shouldn't have and arguably, we don't have the same types of issues in the system related to the mortgage market with Fannie and Freddie being kind of taken care of and those things not really being there. Of course, it's different each time, obviously. So when you look at now, we can look around and see the consumer is levered up to pretty much where they were before 2008. When you look at credit cards, auto loans, student loan debt. You can look at corporate debt. You can look at almost any measure. Now, how do you view the economy now versus back then? Do you think that it's worse now or that we are better off from some of the changes that have been made? Some of the changes that came out of of, of 2008, you realize, okay, the banking system and the insurance system are probably not the areas of that are going to have the problem the next downturn. They seem from a regulatory world and a capital requirements world and the allowance of leverage in those entities controlled for that. That's probably not where the problem's going to come. So then you start to think about, well, where might it come from? Who might be the person at the table that's got the problems? And when you think about the growth of mutual funds and in, in, in such and the growth of just purchase of assets, whether the fixed income or equity or, or, or real estate, 
outside of the banking system, you realize, okay, those are potential areas where problems could, could occur. When you think about the massive increase in triple B rated securities on a corporate level, where you've doubled the size of them dollar wise, this expansion, and you've gone to where now you've got half the corporate market is triple B. An economy that slows down, those entities probably won't stay triple B. They'll probably become junk. How do they, you know, how do they react to that? How do they refinance themselves? How do they continue on as businesses now that they're in a high yield investment and no longer investment grade? Sort of an unknown of how that might work out. So we tend to think of those areas where potential problems could lie. Having said that, Lo and behold, you really don't know where the problem lies until it occurs and you find out, oh, that person owned it. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Usually you don't have warning up until the time that you actually find it out. Uh, so as an investor, I'm going, okay, first off, we don't want to be that guy. <laughs> right? So you really redo our homework to stress test investments to, okay, Asset prices decline, cash flow you know, numbers decline, decline precipitously. We go through a pretty hefty downturn. Are we still covered? Can we still get out of this investment if we have to liquidate it? Not, not from a market liquidation, but okay, I got to sell the assets, take the proceeds and, and pay me off. We also then have to realize, okay, if this is a credit bond or if this is a bond that's sort of somewhat esoteric, a little off the beaten path, or maybe it's just small in size. We realize it's going to go through a period of time of illiquidity, probably won't be able to move it at a price that's attractive. Am I comfortable owning it through that phase? And these are things that you may have added to and put more more put more importance in today than maybe you've done in the past, given what happened in 2008. It's just back to the old thing that we always tell people. We always sit around and we can come up with 101 ways why this isn't going to work, all the bad things that can happen to you. And we said, okay, we're going to assume those occur to us, and we're just going to hope for the best outcome. Can we live through all the bad outcomes and still be okay? Yeah, and as far as the rating agencies, do you feel that they've cleaned up their act? So the corporate side, if you'd asked me this question prior to probably 2008, I might have sat there and goes, you know, they've been doing corporates for a very long time, seem to have a pretty good handle on how to evaluate them. Their structured product was suspect. The concern we have with them today is they've got these AAA rated that are, that are these triple B rated securities. It's about half of what's outstanding. If you were to look at them solely based on that company's leverage, you know, what's the, you know, what's debt to EBITDA as a leverage measure. You would find that that, that ratio that you come up with does not qualify for them to be triple B. They should be something less, double B or single B. Yet the rating agencies, no, it's triple B. Why? Well, the companies told me that they'll take excess cash flow and they'll pay down debt. They'll sell off assets and they'll pay down debt and they'll bring the balance sheet back into order. We're comfortable with that. We'll go with it. That concerns me, that they're not sitting there on a, maybe a more critical basis going, you're levered like you're in a non-investment grade corporation. We should treat you that way. Instead of giving management more of a pass, so to speak, that they'll work that leverage down. Yeah. And as far as on the active management side, especially with fixed income, there's something to be said to have active management. There's this argument with the bums as far as indexing bonds and loaning companies more money on a cap weighted basis when really maybe it should be the other way around. Can you speak a little bit to the benefits of active management and especially with your impeccable track record? Of, of risk management and providing positive return. Yes. So, so, but to active management, you're right. It's a little puzzling to us to go, if you're going to be strictly doing an indexing of, of a, of a bond index, 
a couple of things come to mind. Well, the person, or, you know, the issues more debt is the one you have a higher allocation to. That should scratch your head. And two, it's difficult to replicate it exactly because these issues are that, you know, if the, the bond gets issued, a lot of it gets put away, doesn't trade as often. So you're trying to mimic it in some ways with something else. So that's, that's the first thing. And so the second one is, you know, make, to me, makes, I, th- I think about fixed income in the, in the, the risks of it. The second piece, well, if I'm in an index against a, a, a broad, broad market index, it's got a duration that's almost twice what the yield is. That's a lot of risk that you've just been willing to accept. So go, well, does that make, does that, you know, does that make sense as an, as an investor just to, oh, I'm going to index and accept that? And then the third piece is really to active management in general. I think if you're going to be an active manager, you really have to, A, have a very succinct discipline that you consistently follow and you've communicated to everybody what that discipline is. I think you need to have a couple of investment objectives that aren't just, to me, what is vague. I want to beat the index. That's not really an objective. Like I said, our objective, positive return in 12-month period, CPI plus 100. Because it brings you to the last piece of active management. In our case, when you look at those two, we only look for securities that help us solve for that. We don't care what sector they're in. So it gives you the opportunity to really go out and look at individual securities that help you reach your objective. And if that means there's big swaths of the of, of the bond markets you don't think are attractive because they don't make you help you reach your objective, you just don't own them. So you are truly active in the fact that you truly own things away from the index. You don't look like an index. And I think if you're able to do that, you have a chance to be successful, and then if you're successful, you can be bringing value to that end investor who's put money with you versus, oh, I just want to be, you pick the index and just fill it in, which I think is a, a, to me has always been a vague objective. So, so when you're looking at the duration of, of your portfolio right now and looking out into the future, we've had this 30-year bond bull market. We've had yields fall all the way from 17 18% to where we are now, one and a half on the 10-year. When you explain to clients of how you're positioning the portfolio as far as duration in, in a rising rate environment, if that does play out, how do you, how are you looking at positioning the portfolio to be flexible enough to where if yields keep falling in, turn, in times of a crisis or when that point finally comes and we do see rates rise on the longer end? So what we've what we do with clients to, to, to sort of get the expectations out of them of how we're, how we're going to act is because we've got this objective of a positive return in a 12 month period. We have a, a, a very direct and succinct stress test will apply to any high quality bond, high quality being single A rated or higher. And said, so we know from looking at history, a hundred basis point increase in rates in a 12-month period anywhere along the yield curve is not abnormal. It's normal. It happens. We further are going, well, I'm not going to make a, a judgment, oh, I think rates are going to decline because. And so, therefore, I'm going to own something long. Yeah, I might be right. Yeah, I might be wrong. That's difficult to make an interest rate bet. Says, well, what if they go up by 100? Am I okay? And that ends up telling you what your duration can be. So in today's marketplace, if we were to do that analysis, you can own a treasury that's doing about two and a quarter years. And then, you know, you can basically take a, a 160 yield and make it 260 in a year for something around two, two and a half years. And the total return is zero. Mm-hmm. If you and I had this conversation 365 days ago and I gave you the same example, it was about three and a half years. So it's coming a little over a year in duration during this period of time. So you you set that example with them. It says, okay, this is the maximum we can go and still pass that test. So that's how far in the high-quality space we will allow duration to be. That way we take out the, oh, I think, the 10-year is going to decline because the German insurance companies are all going to buy it and inflation is going to be 1%. I don't know. might happen. But I can say, you know, I can buy a two-year, two-and-a-quarter year. I can be wrong, and rates can go up by 100 basis points, and I'm fine. 
Now, I want to go to, to what you said in rising rates. What's really great about the rising rate side is, is as rates are rising, you basically are saying, I am getting paid to take more risk. Mm-hmm. So if you think back the last couple of years through sort of the end of 2018, the duration of this portfolio was slowly getting longer and longer because every time the Fed raised rates by 25 basis points, we're doing this analysis and going, hey, I can own the two-year. Well, now I can own the two-and-a-half-year. Hey, now I can own the two-and-three-quarters. Now it's three. Now it's three-and-a-half. And so as rates are rising, it's telling you you can go out and you can buy more. And duration. You can go further out because you're paid for the risk of doing it. So it's a great way to systematically put risk on a portfolio from an interest rate risk perspective. And it's a great way for you to be disciplined in taking that risk off the table as you're no longer paid for that interest rate risk. It circles back to what I said about active management and having a well-defined sort of strategy and a well-defined sort of of how we manage money and being able to communicate it. People that understand what you're doing and why. And it, right. it, I don't want to say it makes you predictable, but they, okay, rates are rising. Tom Atterbury and the FBA fixed income team is probably going to have their duration going out because they can. Right. Right. It's higher or the other way, or the other way around. Right. And so I, I think by doing that, you take the guesswork out of, out of things about directions of rates. Now, having said that, when the 10 year was seven and eight percent, the duration of this portfolio was four and a half years. Because I can, well, because I could have a seven-year, ten-year treasury. It could go to eight percent in twelve months. I still had a positive return. Yeah, so it makes sense then. It one and a half. It doesn't make sense. And one seventy doesn't make sense. So if you think back prior, you know, this is back in the you know, sort of in the nineties at times. This thing had a four, four and a half year duration because it was paid to take that duration risk at that time. Now it's not. Yeah, that's a great explanation. I think when you look at various bond indexes, you just look at the bar cap ag, the yield and the duration compared to a, an actively managed fund, you're getting higher yield and lower risk, lower duration. So there's a clear benefit there for active management on the fixed income side. Yes. Lastly, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of these grand experiments. We talked about debt, demographics, deflation, technology. When you look around the world, Japan started their experiment. This was going back to the year 2000, 2001. They brought rates negative. They've been embarking on a huge amount of easing. Now, when you look at the demographics, obviously Japan is the worst, and then you have Europe in both cases, you had the Japanese equity market peak at around in the year 89-90, never recovered since. European equities peaked, never recovered. Obviously, demographics are terrible. When you look at the U.S., we're in pretty good shape demographic-wise, and there's a question about, okay, where do we go next? Is this something more like Japan, or is this something more like India and China, which have obviously great demographics in it? in a great future, even though it's arguably that could be many, many years away. But I think uh, there's this question there. So when you look at Japan, the Japanese you know, central bank, they own equities. They own a large portion of their own debt. It seems like they're just going to keep buying up, going to maybe buy up nearly all the JGBs outstanding. Is that something you could see the U.S. Fed doing as far as maybe doubling or tripling the balance sheet? or And is that a scenario where the baby boomers are selling off equities and fixed income and we could be in a situation where we may have a 20-year down period? So I think it will be much more difficult for the U.S. to follow either a, a Japanese or a European path. And the, 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 the reason that I think that is if I, you know, as Japan, and you alluded, you know, as you were illustrating, and both Europe got into the problems they had. One of the things besides demographics they didn't cure was their banking system problems. The Japanese took about 10 years before they figured out that they really needed to clean up the bad loans on the banks and that that might help them out. The Europeans are just starting to think about we may want to clean up the bad loans we have in the banks and get more equity in the banks and get them in a situation 
whether, you know, whether willingness and ability to lend. The U.S. system has been much more robust to going, okay, banks, you need to raise equity. You need to write off those loans. You need to re, you know, you can't do this anymore. You need to change what you're doing in certain behaviors and then go about your lending business. We're much more flexible about doing that. We've been much more flexible about, okay, you need to reorganize your business. You're going to go through chapter 11. You got to write off this debt. You're going to have to bring new equity in, but the business will still be around. And I think those dynamics make the ability of this country to recover from downturns or to figure out ways to increase its growth and to sort of deal with its problems better than those other two elements have. From a demographic standpoint, I've always found this fascinating. How did Japan and Europe get into the problem they have demographically? And oh, by the way, China has the same problem demographically, but they got there a different way. And why is the U.S. not in that problem? And why to a degree is the, is the British not in that problem? And it's a couple of elements. The biggest element is, well, during World War II, the reproductive population of Europe and Japan was wiped out. Not so much for the U.S. Mm -hmm. Well, that happened in 19, that was over in 1945, and you and I are having a conversation in 2019, but we're seeing the results of that now. Um, the U.S. has been much more, in general, open to immigration as a way to bring in workers and bring in up people who want to create opportunity. So it's also between those two things, its population isn't as, as old and, and, you know, demographically distorted as the other two. So I think that those, those elements will keep us from having the same problems with the Europe and in, in, in Japan. I, I mentioned China. China's one child policy that seemed to make sense when they were having trouble feeding that population. They were trying to, to, to grow and get themselves sort of into a, a more modern economy is now causing them problems today because they have a very old population as well. They just got there a different way. And their challenge is, how do I work through that? Well, we don't, because we don't have those, we seem to be more flexible and have more dynamics to our economy. I don't see the U.S. following those same paths unless those sort of dynamics and flexibilities are taken away. Well, it was great having you, Tom. Why don't you tell people where they can find your work? I'm going to put a link to First Pacific Advisors in the show notes, along with a few other of your media appearances in your bio. But why don't you tell people where they can find your work? So the, the easiest way to find information, you know, find sort of comments that we make and, and such is uh, is fpa.com. That'll get you to the firm's website. You can look at link. Then it'll link you to the various funds. Where are the particular fund we've alluded to at times here is the FPA New Income Fund. And once you get in there, we, we have archived our, our quarterly letters. You can read any quarterly letter. It goes back, I don't know, five to ten years. Um, we've got special commentaries that we've written from, from time to time that people can, you know, sort of read to get, a, get our views and our feelings about the marketplace. Um, and then there's obviously the information about the fund, what it owns, holdings, what's its investment guidelines, there's an uh, investment management policy statement, those sorts of things are on the website as well if people are interested to find out more specifically about what we do and sort of how we think. That's for new income. There, The other strategies the firm has are on there as well in the same manner for for people that maybe are more interested in what, you know, what is FPA and, and who are they. I mean, the, the, the 25 words or less, this is basically a value-based um, investment organization for, for stocks and bonds. We think a lot about preservation of capital and we think, of, you know, a, a, a lot about risk and, and, and return in anything that we buy. Well, great, Tom. Well, it was so fun having you on and we really appreciate it. I right, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. 
You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.